Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, welcome back to What on Earth, the podcast that asks the welcoming question of what on earth is going on in modern supply chains as the industry transitions to the post-carbon, net zero carbon world. Each episode, we look at a big issue that's currently impacting the economy in Australia and ask, what on earth does this mean for your business here in Australia? We aim to provide an understanding for you of the connection between global issues and your local business. We seek to find clarity in the chaos of change while having a good conversation. I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Supply Chain Resilience for AI Group. And to help me have that conversation uh, are my two amigos, uh, firstly in no particular order, as always, the business and industry commentator, the engaging Paul Hodson. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. Good to be with you. And behind the other a cup of coffee on the table here in our virtual studio is my colleague, AI Group's Senior Advisor for Energy and Environment, the always erudite Tenet Reed. Hello, Tenet. G'day. Excited for another chat. It's always good to chat, isn't it? I like it. And you know what? There's never a dull moment uh, when Australia is quickly transitioning to a new economy. And boy, hasn't it been exciting lately. It occurs to me that there's been a lot happening, particularly in this intersection of government and business. So I thought in this episode, we could talk about the role of governments in the transition and how it affects our business. That should make for an interesting conversation. Should get some, uh, some interesting ideas out there. Always fun to talk about governments. <laughs> anyway, first, let's do a news update. Now, I don't know if you know this, Paul, but it turns out we are in the presence of greatness, our own tenant read coming off great success last year with his work at COP26 and with Australia's Electricity Grids and lots of other influencing work. Ten has been named one of the transition's most influential people. He was named one of the Australian newspaper's top 100 green power players 2022. And I've got to say, Tenet, congratulations. How did that feel? Uh, it was it was a surprise and a delight, uh, and I've I've got a copy of the of the piece to put on the fridge, uh, like a uh, a, a good uh, essay at school. I'd send it straight to the pool room if I was you. <laughs> Speaking of influencing, uh, I have some news. Uh, you know, the world's opening back up, and the NBN Co has asked me to speak at two upcoming business community events in Queensland one in Brisbane and one in Gladstone. Uh, I'm going to talk about the three Ds of modern supply chain, uh, digitalization, decarbonisation and disruption. So um, if anyone listening wants to know about that, head over to uh, my LinkedIn page, James Scotland, and the details are there. It's going to be two good informative events, lots of good speakers with me, uh, and I'm looking looking forward to um, getting out and doing some face-to-face stuff. Speaking of which, I think, Paul, you're doing some too. You've got some um, some interesting events coming up. I do, James. And before I say that, congratulations, Tenant, on being named. Um, we all, always knew that we we're in the presence of greatness, but now that's been validated. Um, so, so well done for all that tireless work that you put in. Um, yes, I've got a couple of uh, uh, events coming up. One I'm really excited about, um, excited about all of them, obviously, but one's actually a physical speaking um, it's probably been a good two and a half years since I actually attended or spoke at a physical conference. 
so the National Clean Technology Conference and Exhibition is coming up at the end of March in Brisbane. Um, I'm not speaking on, as part of the Monday and Tuesday, which is the main event, but on the Sunday afternoon, I'm addressing the topic hydrogen hype or future, um, which will be which will be good fun. Um, and then in April, talking at the uh, uh, Renewable Energy Queensland uh, virtual conference as well, looking at how we maximise the opportunity of renewable energy growth out of Queensland right across the supply chain. Um, and, and a steady stream of opportunities to speak coming up as well over the year. So uh, it's nice to get back out there. Yeah, it is actually good to get out there. I'm really excited about uh, getting out there and being able to talk to people face to face. It took me a little while to get used to it. I was in Sydney last week and I felt a bit weird meeting in actual rooms, but uh, you get get over it quickly. Singers were also uh, uh, <laughs> so, so full of wisdom and words. Let's talk about what's going on with government and business. Sometimes it's tough to figure out whether or not government's actually helping our business or just making life harder. Uh, there's lots of angles to discuss. Let's start at the, the meta level of, of government. One of the lessons from COVID era is that the states and federal governments don't always walk in lockstep. In fact, sometimes they seem to be diametrically opposed. The states and the, the federal governments are, are, are fighting. And this, I think, has been a surprise to many Australians that it is a federation of states. It's not Australia as such legally. The United States has been the same. We've seen fights across the states and against the, the sort of federal government. And even the EU has a bit of trouble being a union. Um, it's not surprising that regional areas are different from the national areas, but I thought maybe someone could put it into context. Why do we have this, this, uh, this jigsaw of, of governments? And a way of sort of putting that in context is that I went to a conference a couple of years ago where every single state energy manager got up over two days and said that they were leading the way in hydrogen development in Australia. <laughs> so every state said that they were doing the best. Are we competing? Does it work together? Where do we start with this? Tell me about governments, guys. Well, there's uh, there's an unsatisfying answer to uh, why we've got what we've got, which is it's a historical legacy. Uh, Australia is a is a federation of uh, originally separate and distinct colonies. Uh, who agreed to band together under um, the the limits of uh, a constitution that still left them with an awful lot of responsibilities. Uh, and I don't think it's just a historical legacy, but path dependency is a is a very important part of the picture. Uh, but I don't know, Paul, what if if you want to articulate uh, a case for? the uh, the benefits of of states and competitive federalism um yeah look i think there's i think competition itself can be quite a, a useful motivator um but i also think that competitive can sometimes be unhealthy um and can sometimes bring uncertainty and the like so um it's a it's a really difficult one to answer um it does work well in some ways um, when you've got states and territories um, and the Commonwealth government all driving. If they're all heading in the same direction, then that's fantastic. They're all trying to perhaps one up each other, and 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 means that they're going uh, further uh, 
uh, we're going further ahead together, but it's uh, it's when there are operating across purposes or potentially even uh, being negative towards each other's actions, then from a from a global perspective, especially, it 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 may not be as uh, uh, as beneficial as we would like it to be. Uh, the sort of Team Australia can sort of break down a little bit. Um, it could also mean that we're we're undercutting each other as well, um, which uh, is not a very useful thing to do if we're actually competing, for example, for international investment or business attraction from glo- global uh, organisations. If we're uh, if we're undercutting each other, then um, that's probably not the most sensible thing to be doing at a national level. So I think it, it is what we've got, uh, as as tenants outlined. Uh, it does have some positives to it, but those positives can can sometimes spill over into some sort of negative comp- competitive activity as well. I'm a big fan of the fact that Australia is uh, a massive country and there's differences in every every location. You know, Brisbane is markedly different from Hobart um, uh, and Adelaide is, is different from Cairns and the state, the state borders are a little bit confusing at times. And I'm a fan of competitive advantage. If one particular area has a competitive advantage, they should they should use that. And that's probably difficult when you're trying to do that nationally. But that brings us up to the next level, isn't it, where you've got nations competing against other nations. And it would be remiss to not talk about, you know, the energy situation in the Ukraine and Russia and America and the UK, where they're trying to figure out how how they can work together for the betterment of the world. Whereas we've been trying to work out how to be the betterment of Australia in this first section. Who wants to be brave and hop into global energy and how to use policy to achieve the best outcome? Well, I'm, I'm happy to give it a first go. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia you know, is an enormous world historical event. Uh, it's got lots of implications. We're not going to be able to deal with them all. Most important are the human implications, Uh, but what I'm going to focus on is the energy uh, ramifications, which are really an an earthquake in the global markets and in not so much the direction maybe, but certainly the pace of uh, industry and public policy efforts uh, to transition from oil and gas. Russia is an enormous supplier of oil and gas, particularly to Europe uh, for for gas, but oil globally. Uh, And the fact that uh, other countries now see uh, more more definitively that reliance on Russia is a risk to them, uh, is a a big economic lever that can be potentially held over them and is a national security risk, means that there is uh, a there's gathering momentum around various forms of sanction on Russian energy in the near term. Uh, that's uh, that is a big lever to pull uh, on either side of that for for Russia to block exports does a lot of harm to Russia for Europe uh, or the UK or the US to block imports does some immediate economic harm to them, uh, but. There is a very great momentum behind efforts in Europe to um, enormously reduce their reliance on Russian energy as fast as possible. 
And that's got implications for everyone in a few ways. One is that oil and gas markets are going to be uh, at least tight for quite some time to come. Uh, it is not easy to redirect Russian gas to other markets. That uh, th There are a number of major economies that are, are neutral uh, so far on the question of the, um, the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but selling gas to China or India uh, out of Russia uh, will more selling more of it will take years worth of uh, infrastructure development that is that is not a fast thing uh, and so the the push for uh, greater independence from Russian energy in Europe the UK the US uh, that translates to, greater demand for the existing supplies of, um, uh, of, of acquirable oil and gas. LNG is in hot demand. The prices are amazingly high. Uh, and uh, I think we're going to see high price pressure there for some time. You know, there'll no doubt be a lot of gyrations between uh, eye-wateringly high prices and merely extraordinarily high prices. Uh, but that will have a, a, an impact on uh, the cost of gas-fired electricity. It'll have an impact on transport costs, uh, on inflation, on wage demands. It, like This is a, a big global economic deal. What it's also going to do, though, is accelerate efforts in, in Europe and elsewhere to transition from uh, oil and gas, so boosting home upgrades for energy efficiency, for electrification, uh, boosting, although there are complications involved, the growth of hydrogen production, biogas production, and the use of those things in um, current gas applications. Uh, we're going to see um, you know, push uh, a push on the supply side as well for oil and gas, uh, but new investments there do face some risks. Uh, both risks from uh, the um, the climate imperative and the, the fact that those assets may well be stranded by climate policy down the track, um, but also risks from, you know, what is... A, an LNG facility is a 30-year asset in theory. Uh, what are the odds that, you're, uh, that Russia will be back in um, global energy markets during the life of that asset? I would say pretty high. Uh, whether it's under new management or enough water under the bridge or or otherwise, uh, the Russian energy will still be there. Um, so in the near term, I think we're facing a, a very difficult few years for energy users, uh, but an acceleration of the trends that were already taking shape around uh, new um, new ways of meeting the needs that gas and oil meet today. We mentioned in the last, excuse me, <clears throat> we mentioned in the last podcast that uh, there's a couple of things. First off, Germany's coming out of uh, out of winter, so there's a couple of months of relatively warm weather. So there's, there's a little bit of a uh, little bit of good news there. If it was in the middle of winter, they would be people would be freezing to death. The other thing is, is that, you know, just so everyone understands, the problem is it's a pipeline. In, in Europe, it's a pipeline. And you can't just pick up a pipeline and say we're going to st stop 
supplying Germany and move the pipeline over to India. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. We, we use export via ship so we can send them anywhere we like, but the pipeline is a different deal altogether. So there's some pretty static issues at, at play, isn't there? There's there's the, the calendar of you know spring, winter, uh, summer, and then there is the pipeline itself. Paul? Yeah, look, I, I agree with everything Tennant said there. I think it's a really it's a really interesting one. One, one of the points, and we've been sort of, you know, we're talking about government action and corporate action. And I think one of the things that's been really interesting is, yes, governments have been putting sanctions onto, on, onto Russia, but actually the corporate self-sanctioning, I think, has been quite fascinating. Um, and getting ahead of government sanctions in some ways. Um, and a lot of that's been driven by investors um, by, I guess, by social media and by a, a kind of the community lens over this and by customers. And it's been interesting to watch um, how quickly companies have made their own decisions ahead of governments making decisions. And in fact, when some companies have made a decision, other companies in the same sector have been then pressured to follow suit. Um, and I think that's been a really fascinating thing in terms of the role of governments and the role of the private sector, if you like, and then and the kind of the third sector in 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 driving actions like really quite significant and substantial as 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 Tennant said, historical actions as well um, that may accelerate uh, the movement, particularly on things like climate change action and move a move away from things like oil and gas. Uh, but th that's the part that's you know, I mean, it's a it's a tragic it's a tragic story and. Um, uh, we're all hesitant about how it's going to unfold, but on that side, the, the the role of corporates and the role of governments, and how that works, I think, is a really interesting one um, as we as we talk about it potentially in the domestic setting as well. Mm. I'll come back to the domestic setting in a minute. The I think I said in the last podcast that the EU energy minister, when asked, said, "Well, what do you?" What are you going to say when uh, the price of all the price of gas goes to the roof and we're all suffering pain for this? He said, well, that's what it's going to be like when we run out of this, <laughs> this resource. So let's start thinking about what it's like when we can't afford the existing energy form. Is that a fair argument? Is that a fair point? And can they change fast enough? Well, speed is definitely an issue here. Uh, most of the things that can be done that make sense for the long term take time to build up. Uh, upgrading, upgrading houses is, uh, is a big task, a big task to turn over the housing stock. Uh, and so the, the International Energy Agency has put out its estimates of what Europe can do to reduce uh, reliance on Russian gas this year. And it does have uh, space in it for uh, the rollout of heat pumps, uh, the deployment of uh, other housing upgrades. There's a lot of steps in it on the demand side, but the bulk of what they believe Europe can do this year is secure more LNG from other sources. Uh, that That is... You know, there is a somewhat liquid global market for that commodity and there is some LNG out there if you're willing to outbid people for it. Uh, so I, I think we really are going to uh, need to work on, uh, well, the Europeans most of all are going to need to work on uh, immediate tracks where there are 
some some potentially quite difficult decisions that would may have been unthinkable uh, 12 months ago, not just uh, building two LNG import terminals in Germany and so on, but also, uh, and and uh, Franz Timmerman, the, the EU uh, Commissioner for Energy, was talking about this just yesterday, uh, potentially coal hanging around in the electricity system a little longer than they had previously planned, but uh, the role of gas in the electricity system declining much more precipitously. They had been talking about gas as a, a transition fuel. Uh, they had, you know, just a, a month ago, there was controversy about the um, the investment taxonomy of green finance in, uh, in, in Europe, which was counting uh, gas in some circumstances and nuclear as potentially green investments. Well, gas is falling out of that equation as we speak. Uh, and uh, the potential for extending the life of nuclear power plants, existing ones in Europe, uh, is but in, even in Germany, which had made such a strong turn against nuclear, is, is growing by the day. Uh, so I think... Uh, the, the political implications of high fuel prices and high home heating prices ordinarily seem very dire, uh, but um, Vladimir Putin has volunteered himself to be uh, whipping boy number one for, for any of those consequences, I think. Uh, and there's, there's a, a very decent prospect of uh, political agreement being sustained, achieved and sustained for quite aggressive measures uh, to substitute away from Russian energy, and some of that will be uh, brown energy, uh, certainly in the in the short term. A lot of it will be clean energy, uh, and and building up or or, or megawatts for that matter, uh, energy not consumed because not needed to deliver the service that people need, um, and that will build up ever more over time. Yeah, I think where we're getting to in this conversation is that because of the nature of of politics, governments will always be a little bit behind uh, behind the curve, I guess. Uh, but interestingly, there's an article I read the day from I think the Economist that said that um, the the businesses traditionally miss wars. That if you go back 150 years, investors and business managers don't recognize that a war is going to happen, largely according to this journalist, uh, because uh, they just can't conceive it as being good business. You know, they, they, um, they, there was plenty of businesses in Nazi Germany that honestly thought a war wasn't going to happen. Um, and in the uh, Napoleon War, apparently uh, Rothschild was, was also said, no, there won't be a war. This is ridiculous. And they miss these investment opportunities because they just can't conceive it. So I guess what we're saying, a quick comment and then we'll move on, but I guess what we're saying is that governments and businesses are not good at this kind of stuff, preparing for long-term betterment of society. <laughs> I think a lot of people get surprised by wars, but, I mean, look, the fact is they are a bad idea. Um, nobody... Damn, uh, and it's be, awful. Nobody is going to be better off as a result of the the decision to invade, Russia will be terribly off. Ukraine will be terribly off. Everybody uh, outside will will uh, suffer terrible consequences. It's not a good idea 
But I guess the lesson is that we all have to keep reminding ourselves that sometimes people do things that are not good ideas. Yeah, uh, it confuses economists all the time when you don't go for the obvious best answer. A quick comment, Paul, or no? Will we move on? No, no, I think it's uh, absolutely agree with that. That uh, well, look, I mean, we 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 can predict these things. We can we can put them through modelling, and we can work out the likelihood of things happening. But uh, the pandemic's a great example, anyway, right? Which is, uh, uh, you know, people were predicting pandemics for a long time, but we were still quite surprised when one came along. And I think um, maybe maybe we we uh, collectively work in an optimistic uh, frame of mind, um, and perhaps more a logical. Uh, kind of rational approach as well when we when we do a lot of this decision making, but uh, a lot of decisions and a lot of the worlds doesn't quite follow that predictive behaviour. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so we have to be we have to be a uh, we have to plan as if things are going to be really positive, but we also have to keep an eye on things that are going to disrupt uh, or everything and and potentially up upend everything that we've uh, we plan to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're right, aren't you? Because the global financial crisis happened because economists and investors honestly assumed everyone would, would go to where the value was sitting and instead they pulled the value out of uh, out of those markets and the markets got worse and worse. And the economists kept saying, no, they'll go back in because there's so much value to be grabbed. Um, it didn't happen because humans are humans. Paul, you mentioned before about domestic uh, situations and another example of where government and businesses aren't always in, in step. Uh, has been is is ESG, uh, Environment Social Governance. Um, you'll know that uh, AGL was recently uh, under a takeover threat from from uh, Mike Cannon Brooks and the Brookfield, and their argument was we want to buy this asset because it is uh, still in the old way of energy, the old coal energy, and we want to move it into new energy, and we're frustrated because governments haven't done enough to to move the economy forward. To which, of course, the government said, well, I'm not sure I agree with that. And there was a bit of a dispute. My point is, is that uh, this is all about investors saying we don't want stranded assets. We want to make sure that our money is environmentally, social and governance um, positioned. Uh, and sometimes that's at odds or a bit ahead of where governments are. What do you think? Uh, is it governments lagging? Are, are businesses trying to be too ambitious or are they actually in step? I think look, I think governments are naturally conservative. Um, that they they they're looking at a broader range of things. Um, democratic governments obviously go back to be voted on um, every few years. Um, so there is a the, the governments don't make great leaders um, would be a, a probably a, a big statement to make. Uh, they often can be quite fast followers, but also when market signals start to get really strong. Governments find it hard to keep up, um, you know, and those signals might be economic, but they can be just, you know, weight of opinion. Uh, we talked about the sort of self-sanctioning uh, that 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 major oil and gas companies and other companies have done in uh, in you know in the uh, invasion after the invasion of uh, Ukraine. So so I think um, there is there is a natural hesitancy, I think, for government to to be leading. Um, in, in a lot of these initiatives. I think the AGL one's a really interesting one. There's also the the sense that sometimes it's easier to make change when you're a private company rather than a public company as well. Public company has a lot more disclosure. Um, it has uh, uh, 
you know, it, it's out and out there a little bit more with analysts and others, um, and a public share price that's going up and down. If you're a private company, you can do you can potentially move quicker. Um, so I think that's one of those things. It certainly put the AGL board on notice uh, to create value for shareholders beyond uh, the the price that's been put on the takeover. Um, and I don't think we've seen the end of that uh, yet. Um, I'd like to ask Tenant. Uh, Tenant might like to comment on that. But I'd love him to talk about the emissions reduction fund um, and how you know the government and the private sector work there as well, because that's that's been interesting in terms of the pricing of those Australian carbon credit unit, units and the government's recent decision. Well, there's a lot of issues uh, bound up in all that. On the uh, the coal closures front, I'd just say that there are. Um, there are market drivers for the accelerated closure of coal generation. Right, the the cost of uh, fuel for those plants is is high. It's especially high right now. Uh, the the challenges that they've got in uh, getting dispatched uh, at at prices that make them sustainable are you know that, those things are well known. Uh, so that driver of closure is there sort of irrespective of government policy. It's not the same thing as a driver of let's succeed in the energy transition, let's um, hit an emissions budget. It's just that the, the dollars aren't stacking up for these existing plants increasingly. And so uh, companies rationally responding to those incentives uh, they uh, don't necessarily have uh, the incentives or the ability to resolve all of the systemic and the uh, social uh, issues that those closures raise for the um, the communities and the workers and uh, everybody reliant on the system uh, that those existing assets contribute to. So there, there really is, there does need to be a role both for government and and market authorities in addressing uh, the the broader issues uh, and for business to do business and the relations between certainly the federal government and some of these companies have been very scratchy in in recent years not not just around um the uh the, the bid for AGL, but uh, also uh, in recent years around AGL's own uh, plans to close Liddell uh, in New South Wales, which is uh, is coming up uh, pretty soon. Uh, and so, uh, I'm, I'm going to put in a vote for uh, can't can't we all just uh, get along, work together, and uh, collectively do the jobs that are that are needed on the emissions reduction fund. Uh, this is also uh, one where you know the question of who is responsible for what is is pretty important. The, the government has committed a limited sum of money to buying abatement in in what has more or less been a monopsony, a, a government a single buyer dominated market uh, for these emissions reduction credits uh, over the years. Uh, there has been a growth in private demand in recent years as companies that are making their own emissions reduction commitments to meet their ESG goals, to satisfy investors or otherwise, reach for 
uh, offset credits as one uh, handy tool towards those. And, and those, the, the prices of those credits have surged enormously in recent times. Um, they are now, uh, like, as we speak, they have been tumbling uh, after the, the government uh, suddenly said that they would give, um, give the option, this, a, a painless option, uh, to companies that had agreed to sell it credits. Uh, if they could find a better market for those credits, they could um, sell them elsewhere and the government wouldn't penalise them or, or get them to make up the difference. Um, that's been a bit of a controversial move. Uh, it's very sudden, but it, it does seem to be uh, lowering the, the prices as more supply enters uh, what is a bigger but still quite thin local market, secondary market for these units. So, uh, you know, what? whose job is what here? The, I think the government has been leaning more on voluntary action uh, in the absence of its own uh, options for for mandatory action. It's it's taken a lot of policies off the table um, that that might uh, help meet the targets that it's got, uh, and it's really trying to uh, make the most of uh, voluntary commitments from business. But the problem with that is you can only push purely voluntary action so far before the volunteers start wondering why they're doing everything. Uh, and, you know, whether we're talking about um, disaster recovery GoFundMes or um, uh, national emissions reduction efforts, I, I think uh, there's, there's a, a very important place for private action, community action, individual action, but there's got to be a convincing narrative of, of government action too. In that whole answer, and there's the two parts to that answer, but both of them came down to the idea that, that the governments have a role in signalling where we should be taking the economy, and they also have levers to pull in order to, to send them there. The, the, the comment that you hear all the time is, yes, being a democracy, we change our governments every four years, and so it goes wandering left and right the whole time, and it's not a consistent signal or a consistent lever. Is that right? How do business see this? Can we... Can we really read what's going on or do we have to just keep bouncing around? A transition takes 30, 40 years. How are we going to get some structure into this when we can't get our signals or our levers right? Continuity certainly matters. Uh, not everything in, in government does uh, flip from black to white, night to day uh, with a change of government. Uh, but we have had a lot of that in the energy space and the climate space, and that, that has been pretty bad for investability. Uh, so, so continuity and credibility are, are very important things to, to build up as we go towards a federal election. Whoever's in charge next uh, really needs to have uh, front and centre the consideration of, is what I'm doing actually going to be credible enough to motivate private investment? Because if it's not, they're riding in sand. Paul, you're a businessman. How do you plan ahead when governments keep changing their signals and, their, and pull different levers? Um, look, I think it's, it's not a new thing. Um, but in Australia, we do have, you know, reasonably centrist governments um, that, that 
uh, a lot of the differences are often amplified. Um, but that has provided a reasonable political stability within within Australia. Um, certainly other uh, other nations sometimes have quite uh, stark changes from one to the other, but I think in Australia we've, it's, there's a reasonable centrist position of, of both major parties um, with, with a few things around. And as, as Tennant said, uh, the energy one has been particularly prickly um, over, well, a long period of time now, um, probably at least 15 years. Um, so, um, so I think there is that. Um, but if you're in business, I think you're, you know, you're, you, you recognise that government, um, uh, you know, you can sit back and you can wait for government to tell you to do things, but it's much better to be ahead of it um, and be a leader and grab market share and look for an opportunity to do to do things without government. Um, government sometimes catches up with things like regulation um, once the market gets going, once technology gets going. Um, I think it's quite interesting when you look at things like Uber um, or um, electric scooters that have come into into places around Australia. They they didn't wait for government to regulate them. They came in, you know, they landed. Here they are. We're here. Uh, we're taking on the market, um, and it was non-compliant with with regulation and, and with uh, and and governments had to adjust and to catch up. Um, I'm not suggesting that gov that companies always take that tack. But I don't think it's always a case of government leads and then, you know, business has to sit back and wait. Uh, you can work with other businesses. You can work with your investors. You can work with your customers. You can work with your suppliers um, to to really innovate and to potentially test new business models as, as much as you might be testing new technologies and new products as well. Um, and, uh, and and sometimes you'll actually find that there's incentives to do that. Governments do provide R&D and demonstration and innovation incentives and grants and subsidies and advice to do those types of things. So um, so I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's wrong to be passive around this. I think it's much more important to be active and, and kind of get a read, uh, listen to this podcast, you know, read, go to networking events, uh, read some of the great material that comes out from people like Tennant and others. Um, and really keep yourself informed of where these trends are going uh, and look for an opportunity to get involved. Certainly the best step that anybody can take in their life is to listen to this podcast. <laughs> oh, words of wisdom, top 100 man. Yes. Um, and it wouldn't be a podcast if uh, Paul didn't say at least once that companies should work together. He's the great aggravator, aggregator, not aggravator. Um, that's a great spot to finish on. The point is that uh, there is a difference between policy and programs. Governments have programs on the ground to help businesses, but policies can sometimes lag behind where we're trying to get to. Keep, be aware of it, know what's going on, and um, and watch the world with interest. The other option uh, opportunity, of course, is that what's going on with business, uh, what's going on with government, can create a whole bunch of opportunities. So um, the what do they say? It's one of the one of the one of the rules of life is that government and taxes and debts are all part of part of life. So let's work with them, uh, and let's give an eye on it. Thanks, guys. Another good conversation. Any final comments from from either of you, the great aggregator and top one hundred men? <laughs> I think uh, keep watching the news. Things are evolving pretty rapidly. 
as as we recorded, I was seeing uh, reports out of the US that the Biden administration is developing a World War II Lend-Lease style program to uh, build and supply heat pumps to Europe uh, to speed their uh, their transition from Russian gas. Who knows what will have been uh, decided or discarded by the next time we speak. And I think it's really keen, you know, for businesses to really think about uh, how this is going to affect them. As Tennant said, this is going to flow globally through supply chains, through pricing and accessibility for a whole range of commodities. Um, and so uh, from a protective perspective, you know, businesses should be thinking about that, talking to their suppliers, uh, you know, keeping ideas of that, and then looking for ways of, of potentially reducing their own risks as well through diversifying uh, supplies um, or, or energy sources or all, all sorts of things. And as I said, there are some incentives around uh, to look at some of those initiatives as well. So um, don't 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 just look at this as uh, something that's happening on the other side of the world, but but it will have impact um, uh, right here as well. Business, government, the world, uh, it's all part of business. It's good to talk about it. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next time. Thanks, James. Thanks, Tenham. See you soon.